What's up and welcome to this episode of What the Actual F. If you're new here, hi, my name's Harmony and I'm your host. You're probably wondering what exactly is What the Actual F. Well, to put it simply, I like to come here and tell you some of the most disturbing things that I find out that happen in our world. Stories, conspiracies, hauntings, and so much more that will leave you wondering, what the actual fuck did I just hear? Our world is a truly disturbing place. Though beautiful and fascinating, it is very dark and very grim. So come here every week, hang out with me, and let me tell you a disturbing story. This week is no different. With the newest release of Scream this year, I thought we could discuss a very terrifying case. In this episode, we are going to take a look at 16-year-old Cassie Jo Stoddard and how her brutal death was inspired by the movie Scream. Okay, let's begin. Hello? Why don't you want to talk to me? Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn at the movies. Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Oh, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh so right now, we're going to travel back to 2005, and we are going to the Potato State, Idaho, particularly Pocatello, Idaho. Now, Pocatello is a relatively small town as far as towns go, and it's extremely conservative. More than half of the population in Pocatello are members of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. That's right, the Mormons. However, Pocatello was going to be the brand new home for Frank and Allison Contrera. The couple and their three children were moving from the bustling San Francisco Bay Area to Pocatello. They had just purchased their brand new home located on Whispering Cliffs Drive, a beautiful four-bedroom, three-bath home on two acres of land. This house was located in a quiet, secluded area which would offer a much calmer and easygoing lifestyle, especially if you compare it to the one that they were giving up in San Francisco. Frank and Allison had two children from previous relationships and one child together. So they packed up and headed to Pocatello to start their brand new happy chapter. However, you know if I'm telling you about it, spoiler alert, it's not a happy ending. The family had no idea of the nightmare they were in store for. In the back halls of the Bannock County Sheriff's Office hang clippings of news articles from a case that rocked the community nearly 14 years ago. Jury is found guilty, sir. Jury is answered guilty. In 2007, juries found two Pocatello teenagers, Brian Draper and Tori Adamchek, guilty in the 2006 murder of fellow classmate Cassie Jo Stoddart. Alright, let's go ahead and fast forward through time just a little bit. We are now in September of 2006. This is when Frank and Allison decide, you know what, let's go ahead and have a weekend getaway. Let's treat ourselves. You know, maybe some little R&R, little brown chick, brown cow. So they're busy making plans and realize they need somebody to house sit the brand new house they just bought and watch their animals. And they think of the perfect person, their 16-year-old niece, Cassie Jo Stoddard. 
They knew they could trust her because she had babysat for them on several occasions. The couple thought very highly of their niece. In fact, from what I could find, everybody thought highly of Cassie. Cassie didn't drink and do drugs like most of the kids at her school. She also got straight A's. Which, if you remember school, <laughs> sometimes your academics suffered because, well, your mental health was too. But Cassie seemed to be doing pretty well. And she was extremely happy. She was noted as being very trustworthy and extremely responsible for her age. The couple knew she would take care of the animals and not trash the house while they weren't there. Remember, as a teenager, most of your friends, if they had a house to themselves, they would have a party. They knew that Cassie was not this kind of teenager. So she was their number one choice. So they approach their niece and say, hey, you want a big house for the weekend all to yourself? Of course Cassie's like, yeah, you fucking bet I do. Immediately, Cassie jumps on the opportunity. She really loved being at her aunt and uncle's house. She adored the home, she loved the area, and she was excited to get to be there by herself with the animals. Plus, she would get paid to do it as well. Why not? What's the harm in that? What Cassie couldn't have known is that this weekend would be the very last of her life. This isn't funny, Amber. Would you like to play a game, Tara? Locked. Now before we go any farther in what happens on this disturbing, disturbing evening, I want to take a moment and tell you guys about the victim. Cassie Jo Stoddart was born on December 21st, 1989, right there in Pocatello. All this talk about Idaho is making me want some potatoes! <clears throat> Sorry, let's, let's uh, stay on topic, Harmony. But seriously, I love potatoes. Get in my belly! Sorry about that. Cassie was one of three kids. She had an older sister by the name of Christy and a younger brother that she was extremely close with by the name of Andrew. At the time this story takes place, Cassie's parents were no longer together. In fact, when I was researching this case, I couldn't find a lot about Cassie's biological father. So I'm not exactly sure what happened there, where he is, I don't even really know his name. So I think it's safe to say that he wasn't in the picture. That didn't matter though, because the family was very close. The Stoddart children were extremely close with their grandparents and would live between their house and their mother and stepfather's house. So in their childhood, the family was just going back and forth between their mom and stepdads and their grandparents. Now, I don't come from a family that did this, but apparently this is kind of a normal thing that, you know, grandparents are welcoming and are like, yeah, you can come stay with me for a week and go to school from here. I didn't have that, but like, this was just kind of normal. So she comes from a very loving background, has a great family, and yeah, her dad's not really in the picture, but that didn't seem to matter because she had a great stepdad. Cassie was also a very talented artist and loved music. As a fellow artist, I get it. According to all of Cassie's family and friends, she was very, very smart and very kind, but extremely strong-willed. So like borderline stubborn. But nobody had a negative thing to say about Cassie. I told you that her and her younger brother Andrew were very close, and that's true. Even though she was only about a year and a half older than Andrew, he described her as being his best friend. 
She wasn't like a sister to him, she was his best friend. They did everything together, and of course, they, they fought, they'd call each other names and be a little shitty. But they trusted each other, and he knew that Cassie would always be there for him. Because that's just who she was, reliable and trustworthy. I mean, after all, that's exactly why her aunt and uncle asked her to watch their home. Because Cassie is reliable and trustworthy. But who could have guessed that those two amazing qualities to have in a person would lead her to her grave? At the time the story is taking place, Cassie is a junior at Pocatello High School. And it was right there in the halls of Pocatello High School that she would find love. For about five months, Cassie had been dating a boy by the name of Matt Beckham. So now it is Friday, September 22nd, and Cassie is heading out to her aunt and uncle's house for the weekend. She arrives to the massive house on Whispering Cliffs Drive. And once she gets there, she kind of realizes she may have bitten off more than she could chew. Because she is there all alone for the whole weekend by herself. This is when she comes up with the idea to call Frank and Allison and ask if they would be okay with Matt coming over during the evenings. Because she is 16 and she is scared of being there alone, especially when it's dark out and she's in this remote, secluded area. Because Cassie is so trustworthy and reliable, her aunt and uncle say that it's absolutely okay for Matt to come over. They don't think she's going to have any parties, they don't think she's going to trash the house, and they don't think she's going to do anything that could be bad. So, she invites Matt over. At this point, they should have a wonderful night cuddling on the couch, watching a movie, and maybe falling asleep. However, their night wouldn't go as planned. In fact, from here, <laughs> the whole weekend wouldn't. We have now arrived at the very last hours in Cassie's short life. What makes this case even more terrifying is what I'm about to tell you. The two young boys who were responsible for ending Cassie's life were her friends. And no matter what Cassie could have done, it was her fate to die that night because her so-called friends had been planning her murder. Hey look, it's Cassie. Hey, look, I don't know. Hello, Cassie. <laughs> I'm getting you on tape, okay? Say hi, please. Hi. Okay, see ya. At around 6 o'clock that night, Matt arrives at the house. Cassie had picked out the movie Kill Bill Volume 2 for the couple to watch together. However, Matt had decided to invite two of his friends along. These guys were not just friends of Matt, as Cassie also knew them. Their names were Brian Draper and Tori Adamsick. Brian and Tori were classmates of Matt and Cassie's at Pocatello High School. And while Cassie considered them to be friends, you can't see it, but I'm doing air quotes. They weren't close close. They were basically her friends because of her boyfriend Matt. But they all knew each other and kind of circulated in the same group. Now, just because Cassie knew them doesn't mean she wasn't annoyed at the fact that they were showing up as well. Because Matt had invited them without even asking her. Even though she was pretty frustrated at this, Matt assured her it was going to be okay. They were just going to come over and watch the movie with them and hang out. And maybe the scariest part of all is somewhere in Cassie's mind, she probably thought she'd be a little safe. Because there'd be three guys there to protect her. After all, Brian and Tori were Matt's best friends. Wouldn't they want her safe as well? Short answer, no. It's 26, we're skipping the fourth hour. We're not even planning right now. I'm sorry, Cassie's family, but 
GID number one. We have to check the plan. And she's perfect, so she's gonna die. <laughs> Brian and Tori arrive to the house around 6.30, 7 o'clock. For argument's sake, let's just go ahead and say they get there at 6.45. We can meet in the middle here. Cassie decides to go ahead and give the three boys a tour of the home. But what Cassie couldn't have known is that tour was giving the killers that would take her life in just a matter of time a nice little blueprint of the house they would chase her around. While she was showing them the basement, Brian took this time to unlock a door which led to the backyard without Cassie noticing. This would be their entry point. Once the tour was over, they all headed back to the living room to begin the movie. About halfway through the movie, Brian and Tori decide they're bored and you know what? They're just gonna leave. Fuck it. Y'all suck. We're out. And Cassie was like, all right, good. Get out. Go, go, go. You are third and fourth wheeling anyways. So she was happy to see them go because now she could hang out all alone with Matt. They told Matt and Cassie that they were going to go to the movie theater instead because sitting on the couch with a couple wasn't any fun. By this point, they had been at the house for about two hours. Around 15 minutes after they left, the power to the house went out. Being thrust in complete and utter darkness in a big, isolated home made Matt and Cassie extremely uneasy. This is when Cassie remembered the circuit breaker is in the basement. And although she was glad to remember where it was, this didn't make it any less creepy. Everyone knows you don't go in the basement in the dark. Uh-uh! Haven't you seen, like, every scary movie? There's somebody down there. So needless to say, they were scared. There was no way that they were gonna go down there. Instead, they made the very smart decision to sit on the couch and huddle up together, just hoping and praying that the lights would turn back on any minute. At some point, one of the Contreras dogs began growling at the door, but not just any door, the door that led to the basement. Mm -mm. Nope, that's nightmare fuel. This only added to Matt and Cassie's fear. They are legitimately living in a horror movie right now. There's no power, they're in a massive house in the middle of nowhere, albeit a very beautiful location, but it's still in the middle of fucking nowhere. Nobody around to hear you scream, as they say in horror movies. So like, these two 16-year-olds are terrified. So Matt had a really bad feeling and he decided to reach out to his mom. He called her and asked if he could stay the night with Cassie and told her what was happening. Of course, because it probably to his mother sounded like an excuse for him to just stay the night with his 16-year-old girlfriend, his mother was like, I don't think so. You better be ready when I'm there to pick you up as we planned. Now I'm going to pause you for a minute because I can't personally decide if this is a smart decision or a dumb decision. And I'm not insulting his mother. What I'm simply saying is if she had said yes, and allowed her 16-year-old son to stay the night with his 16-year-old girlfriend, would one of two things have happened? Would this decision have saved Cassie's life? Or would it have added a second victim, taking another life? I guess we'll never know. Now, there are some different accounts online. Some people say that Matt's mom did offer for Cassie to come stay the night at their place. You know, because the power's out, there's no adults there, they could at least come and stay at her place, she'd feel safe, there is power there, and there's adults. The internet can't agree if that was actually an offer or not. But uh, according to some accounts, it was, and Cassie said no. So I don't know if it really did happen or didn't, but some sources state that his mother offered for her to come be there if she really was so scared. Nonetheless, what happens is what happens. 
Cassie doesn't go and Matt doesn't stay. Eventually, the lights do end up coming back on. This immediately made Matt and Cassie feel so much better. Around 11 o'clock, Matt's mother came to pick him up as they had planned. Matt and Cassie said their goodbyes, gave each other a kiss, said goodnight, I love you, and I'll see you, well, tomorrow most likely. But they wouldn't see each other again. In fact, this would be the last time anybody saw Cassie alive. There should be no odds against killing people. I know it's a wrong thing, but... Hell, hell, you restrict somebody from it, they're gonna want it more. We found our victim, and sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie's daughter. She's gonna be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I, I mean, like, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah. I was 9.50. September 22nd, 2006. We know there's lots of doors. There, there's lots of places to hide. I locked the back doors. That's all locked. Now we just gotta wait. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. I'm I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, I just oh killed God. Cassie. Oh, oh fuck. That felt like it wasn't real. Uh, I mean, it went by so Shut fast. Shut the fuck up. We gotta get our act straight. Okay. Let's fast forward. Two days later, on September 24th, the Contreras family arrived back home that Sunday as planned. Frank and Allison's 13-year-old daughter was the first to enter the home. The front door was found to be unlocked, which she did think was a little strange, but maybe Cassie had just forgot. So she didn't think much of it and continued into the house. When she walked into the living room, she began screaming. Her terrifying screams caused Frank and Allison to come running in the house to check out what was going on. There was blood everywhere, all over the carpet, all over the furniture, and all over the walls. I'm talking a brutal massacre scene. This is when they saw her. On the floor next to the couch laid their niece's body, Cassie. Cassie had been brutally murdered and they were smack dab in the middle of the crime scene. Frank immediately called the police and Cassie's mother. Her mother and stepfather would later arrive to the horrible, gruesome scene. Andrew would later describe his stepfather calling him sobbing and breaking down, finding it almost impossible to utter the words that his sister had been murdered. Remember how we spoke about the Columbine killers just a little while ago? It may not surprise you to learn that in court, Brian Draper said that he was inspired to carry out his vicious crimes after learning about Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the two teens who claimed the lives of so many students on that fateful day in 1999. Tory then spoke with prosecutors and admitted that he was inspired by the Scream movie franchise. Immediately, investigators are on the scene and they begin processing all the evidence they can find. The sheriff's department put the Contreras family up in a hotel during this time so they could make sure to get every single aspect of the house without contamination. They couldn't find any signs of forced entry, which they thought was a little odd, but this suggested that Cassie let her killer in, or in this case, killers, which told investigators that Cassie most likely knew her killer. Although the scene in the living room was terrifying and gruesome, the rest of the house seemed to be completely undisturbed. 
Nothing in the house had gone missing or was reported stolen, ruling out burglary as motive. All the animals had been locked up in a separate room, but they were not hurt or harmed. When Cassie's autopsy report was finally released, it revealed the brutality of her attack. She had been stabbed 30 times. She had been stabbed in her chest, neck, back, and abdomen. They couldn't decide which stab wound had been the fatal blow as 9 to 12 of them were determined to be fatal. Now Cassie fought back and she fought hard. She had defensive wounds all over her hands and arms. It was estimated that she had been dead for roughly two days when her body was discovered, meaning the murder happened the very first night she arrived. Now, like most cases, suspicion immediately fell on Cassie's boyfriend, Matt. Matt was the last person to see Cassie alive, adding that the attack was very vicious and brutal. Stabbing someone 30 times is overkill. This kind of brutality is usually only seen in a frenzied attack, often perpetrated by someone who knows the victim, like a romantic partner. So immediately, Matt was suspect numero uno. However, Matt was eager to help in the investigation. During his questioning, he gave a detailed timeline of how he spent the evening with Cassie and who all was there. He detailed how Brian and Tori had been at the house as well, but they decided to leave early because they were, quote, bored. He told them about the phone call he made to his mom and that he wanted to stay with Cassie at the house because in his own words, he didn't feel comfortable leaving her alone. He did tell investigators that his mom decided she would still come get him so he couldn't stay and be there for Cassie. He then went home and spent the rest of the night there. He was even able to prove that he never left his house via phone records, and calls, and text, and his parents. The following day, Saturday 23rd, he repeatedly tried to get a hold of Cassie. After all, they had kind of an eventful night and he was worried about her. Wanted to see if the power stayed on, you know, make sure she made it through the night unscathed. Maybe shaken, but definitely not dead. However, he had no idea that Cassie was already dead. So his calls and texts went unanswered. Now you're probably wondering, why didn't Matt just get in his car and go check on her? Well, this is why his mom had to pick him up. Matt was a 16-year-old that didn't have a car. I know, gasp! But not everybody in this world is made of money. And some 16-year-olds just don't have a car. By the way, if you didn't catch on, that was sarcasm. Because I ain't made of money either. <laughs> when my 13-year-old turns 16 and he asks for a car, I'm gonna ask him with what down payment. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Shit's expensive in this world. Anyways, let's keep going. So Matt couldn't drive to go see her as he would have to get a ride there. And spoiler alert, nobody wanted to drive him around anywhere. His mom wasn't really worried as she saw it again as just teenagers. She was alone in a house. She like probably was enjoying it. They would end up talking as they always did, but Matt could not have known the true horror of why she wasn't responding. Investigators were quite sure that Matt was not responsible for Cassie's murder. The combination of his timeline, phone records, and alibi from his parents and his cooperation, how he went above and beyond with the investigation, made them confident that he was not involved. They did press him extremely hard. It's not like they were like, oh no, he says he wasn't involved. So like, obviously he wasn't. If he says you didn't do it, well, I mean, you can't tell a lie. Everyone knows that. It wasn't like that at all. They did make his life a bit of hell for a while, but he never broke and his alibi was ironclad. It's iron solid. Nonetheless, the fact remains that he could not have been the one that took Cassie's life, but he wasn't the only one there that night. 
And the more they questioned Matt, the more the suspicions left him and went somewhere else. They asked him some questions about Brian and Tori. This is when Matt told them he was better friends with Tori, and that Cassie had been friends with them as well, but they weren't extremely close. She really just kind of tolerated them because she cared about him. He also stated that both of the boys had shown interest in Cassie. They had tried flirting with her and like mildly hitting on her, I guess, which Cassie wasn't a fan of. On September 25th, 2006, Brian and Tori were brought into the station to be questioned. After all, they had seen Cassie alive that night, and they had been there. The two boys were led to separate rooms along with their parents. They were allowed to have their parents in the room as they were only 16 at the time. And unlike some police stations, these ones followed the rules. Both of them sat for several interviews. Investigators hounded them for days on end. Before speaking to investigators, however, Tori told his mother that he had been with Cassie, Matt, and Brian that night, but he had nothing to do with Cassie's murder. He promised. Tori's mother, of course, did not want to believe that her son could be capable of such a heinous act. So she didn't question his story. I think deep down as a mother, she didn't want to question it because the thought that her son could do something like that destroyed her. As the questioning from investigators progressed, the two boys became increasingly frazzled and were a bit unable to keep their stories straight. Shock! It's kind of hard to keep a lie going as a truth, especially when investigators are like, that's weird because the evidence doesn't state that. So when you're being faced with cold hard facts, but your story is stating something else, it gets kind of tough to keep it together. And they kind of didn't have it all planned out, not as well as they thought they did. Because remember, they had been planning it. The pair had a death list. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. They explained that after they left the Whispering Cliffs house, they went to a movie theater. But they had nothing to prove that they actually went there. Brian originally said that they went to see the movie Pulse. But when asked to describe the plot of the movie, he all of a sudden couldn't do it. I, I, don't, I don't know, some, something about heartbeats? Nope, no, that's not it. It's a horror movie? What? <laughs> Seriously? Oh shit, I fucked up. Just three days after Cassie's body would be discovered, Brian cracked. He told investigators what happened that night. Now, just because he said what happened that night doesn't mean he exactly confessed. Nope. He pointed the finger at Tori. And I saw that he had a big uh, video collection. So I looked at a bunch of movies and stuff. Okay. And then I think... Did you look through those movies? I did. Okay. Do you like movies? I mean, I, that, yes. What kind of movies? What's your favorite kind of movies? I like horror movies. Okay. Do you like horror movies? Yeah. What's your favorite movie? My favorite movie? Uh, what, what genre? It's what? what? Well, like what category? Oh. Mm. There's a lot of is there? What What would you say is your favorite movie of all? All time, my favorite movie would have to be. There's lots of choices. <laughs> um, to be honest, I'd have to say Halloween. My favorite movie. Okay, it's a good one. Good movie, it is. <laughs> That's a pretty good classic. Brian's story went a little something like this. 
He and Tori did in fact go see Cassie that night. And while she was giving them a tour of the house, he unlocked the back door in the basement. This way, him and Tori could re-enter later. After watching about half of the movie, they told Matt and Cassie they wanted to leave, making sure they let them know they were going to a movie. However, he let investigators know they in fact never left the property. Instead, they went outside and waited for about 10 minutes. This is when they went out to Tori's car and put on their Halloween masks and gloves. Oh, that's right, they had costumes. Now, costumes weren't the only thing they brought to this party. No, they brought weapons, specifically knives. They then re-entered the house via the unlocked door in the basement. They were hiding in a small room in the basement where, wouldn't you know, the circuit breaker was. Are you getting it put together now? Do you see what's happening? In case you don't, I'll continue. This is when the pair decided to disconnect the power via the circuit breaker. And boom, house go dark. Ah! Sorry, dramatic effect. Now, their plan didn't exactly go as they had hoped. You see, they thought if they cut power, Matt and Cassie would have to come downstairs and see what was going on. But Matt and Cassie were too chicken shit to get off the couch, which, probably save their lives, at least for the time being. Brian, however, says that they only wanted to scare them. They weren't actually planning to kill him. We just wore costumes and brought knives because <laughs> we're funny like that. Obviously, the investigators laughed too, because that's just a hilarious prank. And no, they didn't. They didn't laugh at all. So when they never came down, they turned the lights back on. That's it. Done. It didn't work. Let's go home. Nope. Brian and Tori decided to stay in the basement. It wasn't actually clear whether they knew if Matt had left the house by the time they did anything, but I think they most likely heard him leave when his mother did arrive to pick him up, meaning they probably realized Cassie was indeed alone. They then messed with the circuit breaker again. They hoped that this time Cassie would come downstairs to investigate, but Cassie didn't come down. No, instead, Tori ran up the stairs and began attacking Cassie, playing out some sick, twisted teen slasher film right there, in the middle of Cassie's aunt and uncle's living room. Only this wasn't a movie. This isn't some teen slasher film. This was real life. And the events of that night left Cassie, Joe Stoddard, dead. Who sold you your ticket? I remember it was a guy. I remember that. Was there anything particular about him? He's just a guy who looked there. Okay. Did you did you know him? No. And and, and so we got so we got go. You buy from the guy. It's nine forty five. Yeah. Do you think it's nine forty five when you go inside the lobby there? Um. So if someone sees you there, they're going to see you at nine forty five. Probably. Okay. Okay. But where is the movie at? Uh, I think the movie's on the right side. Okay. And then wh where at is it? The first theater. You guys turn and go in. Is there any way you can help us out with a map of the theater to, to show us kind of where the movie was in there so we know? Uh, and again, we're just trying to confirm, you know. Yeah, that, of course. That, so you know. And you can do another uh, page if you want. Just flip the page. Flip the page. Yeah. All right. Okay, box here. Parking lot over here. That's where we park, by the way. And you're absolutely, unequivocally positive that you two went into Pulse. You two bought tickets for polls. Yeah. This is an attention-grabbing technique to redirect the suspect to this particular interrogator, who, up until this point, has been mostly passive. This is a classic technique when asking, 
Are you absolutely sure of XYZ to get the suspect to commit to a fact-based answer? Which suggests the interrogators know something contrary and they want an explicit lie or contradiction. Yeah, okay. Now, things get a little bit fuzzy around here because at this point, the two killers had turned on one another. In Brian's fourth interview, he told investigators that while Tori was the first to stab Cassie, he had also stabbed her as well. But don't worry, it probably wasn't a fatal one because it was only in the leg and the chest. And he only did it because Tori was threatening him. You know, one of those, we're already here, you better do it or you're gonna end up on the floor too. And besides, dude, it was part of our death list, you gotta carry through. Something like that. So the boys had a death list. As in, they had planned it all. There are recordings of them talking about every single thing. They're writing it down while they're sitting in school, by the way. Yeah, they're like sitting in the library at school talking about how they're going to kill Cassie. They even apologized to her family. If you want to go back, you can hear the audio of this throughout the little snippets that I've been sharing. According to Tori, it didn't matter. Cassie was going to die anyways. That was always the plan. Tori could no longer claim that he was some innocent party in this, because up to that point, he was stating he was. But the jig was up. He did his best to like wiggle his way out of any accountability, and he did this by pointing the finger at Brian. You got the wrong guy. It wasn't me. I'm just a kid. It was him. Or something like that. So obviously they could tie Tori to the crime implicating him in Cassie's murder. So yeah, he admits, okay, I was there. I was kind of involved. But Brian is the one who did it. It was all his idea. He even stated that he really didn't even know what was happening. Yep, he stated he had no clue what was happening. According to him, the plan was that they were there to scare Cassie, not to kill her. He insisted that he believed they were there just to make some sort of scary movie, like Scream or Halloween or Michael Myers. You know, just throw on a mask, some gloves, grab some very real knives, and your friend. <laughs> It'll be hilarious. Typical Friday night. What's the harm, right? It was just a joke. However, it wasn't. It turned into this brutal murder, which he claims was never the plan. <laughs> Investigators weren't buying that at all. But it was his explanation of the crime that would lead to this case becoming known as the Scream Murders. So when they were in the basement, Tori states that he was actually too afraid to go upstairs. But Brian wasn't. So Brian wasn't afraid and he rushed up there. And when Tori finally arrived upstairs, there he was. Brian, brutally stabbing Cassie to death. However, this little blame game and I don't really know what happened didn't fly with investigators. Because investigators had evidence. All the videos and that lovely little death list the boys had made. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a f***ing joke. I'm I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, oh I just killed God. Cassie. Oh, oh f***. That felt like fucking real. I mean, it went by so fast. Shut the f*** up. We gotta get our act straight. Brian would eventually lead investigators to Black Rock Canyon. This is where Brian and Tori had hidden evidence that could connect them to the murder, including the very knives they used to stab Cassie. Investigators recovered almost two dozen items from the spot that Brian had led them to. Among these items, there were a pair of black boots, rubber gloves, a pair of black gloves, and four different knives, one of which had a serrated blade, and another that resembled a dagger. And, of course, 
their Halloween masks. Oh, and another thing, a camera complete with a videotape. Several of the items were partially burned or had been attempted to be destroyed. There was even a handwritten letter. Now, because it was burned, they couldn't exactly make out what it said, but it appeared to be in detail some of their plans for the murder of Cassie. They were actually able to decipher something about possibly killing Matt as well if he were at the house. So, like I said, so if Matt had stayed, it begs to wonder, could he have saved Cassie's life or would he have become another victim? Because according to Brian and Tori's list, they had no problem killing him. Investigators found out after they examined the camera and the videotapes and read their list that Brian and Tori considered themselves some sort of a filmmakers. Yeah, that's right, a regular M. Night Shyamalan. However, they were mainly interested in making documentary-style films, not weird mind-benders like Mr. Shyamalan. Shyamalan? Am I saying that right? Just pretend I did and let's continue. Unlike most documentarians, they were the subject of their movies, not something or somebody else. They would go around and document their everyday lives, kind of like a YouTuber. Now, not only did they have Brian's confession, they also had the two boys on film talking about Cassie's murder and admitting to it. It was clear in these videos that the boys felt no remorse. In fact, they seemed to get off on it. Thinking about talking about and discussing the murder even made one of them claim they were horny due to it. Uh-huh, yeah, it's uncomfortable. So I'm not gonna keep talking on that note, let's move along. With all the evidence in Brian's confession and the videotapes, the boys were arrested and they were charged with Cassie's murder. Especially the video. Yeah. A lot of things on the video that's not looking real good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Makes you both look pretty bad. Brian and Tori were tried separately for the murder of Cassie Jo Stoddard, and they were tried as adults. On April 17th in 2007, Brian Draper was found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree. On June 8th, 2007, Tori Adamsick was also found guilty on both charges as well. On August 21st, 2007, both boys were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole plus another 30 years for conspiracy to commit murder. And like most killers who get sent to prison for the rest of their lives, they both appealed their convictions. It does seem as though Brian is more accepting of his punishment, while Tori continues to claim how innocent he is in this. Yeah, any appeals the boys have put in have been denied. Both of their convictions have continued to be upheld today. Now, I do want to bring up something that I also found in my research. Just because they have life in prison plus the extra 30 years doesn't mean they might not ever get out. Let's discuss a 2012 Miller v. Alabama case in which the United States Supreme Court ruled the mandatory sentences of life without the possibility of parole are unconstitutional for juveniles, even in cases of murder. So basically, the Supreme Court says that even if you think it's justifiable to take someone's life away from them, they don't think it's justifiable for them to at least lock your ass away for the rest of yours. Cause yeah, we should give a fuck about killer's feelings. Right? Here, let me hold your hand as you brutally slit someone's throat. It's okay. I got you. I hate our system. 
In 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Montgomery v. Louisiana that Miller v. Alabama ruling should be applied retroactively, as in backland. The decision made more than 2,000 inmates across the country eligible for resentencing or for the possibility of eventual freedom. And this includes Tori Adamsick and Brian Draper. Before I close out this case, I want to end it with a line that Andrew, Cassie's younger brother, said, because it's quite beautiful and extremely haunting. In regard to his sister's passing, Andrew said this, You know, it makes you appreciate things a lot. You just never know how fragile life is. You never know how easy it is for someone to be gone the next day. So there it is, the real-life case that was inspired by the Scream movies. Now I want you to ask yourself something. Do you think you could survive a horror movie? Do you even know the rules of a horror movie? That's why she always outsmarted the killer in the big chase scene at the end. Only virgins can do that. Don't you know the rules? What rules? You don't... Jesus Christ, you don't know the rules? Have an aneurysm, why don't you? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Big no no! Big no! Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin, it's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. You know, before I say goodbye, I want to share something with you. I have been interested in true crime and conspiracies and hauntings and just really weird stuff my whole life. I've always wanted to know more about everything. And the more that I dig into the crimes around the world that I do end up coming across, there, there's no doubt that this has desensitized me to a lot. But I think something that I never will understand is how you can be close to somebody, you can care for somebody, you can know them and they can be in your daily life, and yet you can kill them. Not even like a crime of passion, which no, I'm not excusing. But to plan and commit a murder in such detail, that is truly and utterly fucked up. It takes a truly horrible person to commit these acts. And I'm just here to remind you that those people walk among you. So, until the next episode of What the Actual Left, you guys stay safe because you never really know who you can trust in the world. I love you guys. And I'll talk to you on the next episode of What the Actual Left. Um, that's the part where you go. Seriously, listen, I can't stop if you're still here listening. Uh, don't you know how podcasts work? I talk, you listen, that moment has now come and gone. You gotta go. Okay, okay, fine. Let me count down and then we say goodbye. How about I count to three and then we say our I love yous and goodbyes. All right. Here we go. One, one and a half. Oh, but here comes two. It's okay. Two and a half is on its way. Two and three quarters. And three. Okay, love you, bye. Hello, I'm Gail Hailstorm, author of the book, You're Dead, I'm Rich. A small college town is in shock after the unthinkable has happened. 
A brutal killing spree that left one teen dead. That's it. Two teens dead. And this small town, shaken and stirred. It's times like these. Police are combing the area for clues. It seems there are no witnesses available at this time. There However, are no suspects in custody. Police are asking anyone to come forward. Report live for Black TV. White folks are dead. We're getting the fuck out of here. Let's roll, Jack. Come on, Let's go, motherfucker. Let's go.